Let's begin today's show talking politics with a guy who never overshares, the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones and best-selling author of American Psychosis, David Korn. David Korn, good to have you back. How are you today, sir? Great to be with you, Tavis. How are you? Man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well and delighted, as always, uh, to be in dialogue with you. Let me just get started. Uh, a lot of trending stuff, obviously. You and I both know this being in this business. Uh, it's really feast or famine. Some days there's uh, precious little news, and other days there's too much news to cover. And we've been in this uh, too much news frame for a few weeks now. And it's hard to know on any given day where to start the conversation. There's Trump news. There is Israel Hamas news. There is House Speaker news, etc. 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 Let me start with the House Speaker. Um, we we this has been uh, you know we call it a haunted house around here. Uh, it's a house of horrors, uh, and uh, the fact that Jim Jordan was on the verge of uh, of becoming Speaker was was scary for me in a variety of ways. Uh, that is not going to happen now. There are a ton of folk who suggest they uh, intend to run for Speaker. Broadly speaking, and we'll narrow as we move through the hour. But broadly speaking, what do you make of this this brouhaha, this mess uh, that is the U.S. House? I have no idea. <laughs> well, in terms of like what's going to happen, I mean, anyone can. I mean, you know, what to make of the mess? It's a mess. It's chaos. It's dysfunction. Now, it's not surprising. I mean, I go into this in my book, American Psychosis. This has been long in com- coming, going back to like Newt Gingrich and the Tea Party and Sarah Palin. The Republican Party moved to these extremes in which it fed a radicalized Republican base that was driven by grievance, in some cases racism, and by anti-government fervor. And they elected all these folks who don't want to come to Washington and do anything except shoot down government, get on Fox News, and get attention for tweets. You know, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. Jim Jordan's like that. He ran for the House Speaker. He's been in the House 16 years. He's never once passed a single piece of legislation. He's just about trolling and holding hearings to support false narratives that the deep state is out to get Donald Trump and other conservatives. It's, uh, you know, and so this is, you know, you do this long enough and you end up with people in the House Republican Caucus who don't give a damn about protecting the institution. Are the institutions even working? You know, people say, well, if we shut, you know, we, you know, it has to at least work so we don't end up shutting down the government. They say, no, we want to shut down the government. That's what we're here to do, despite all the pain it would cause millions of Americans and the cost it would impose on American taxpayers. They want, you know, it's like, it's like the Joker in the Batman movies, the Dark Knight Returns particularly. The mm-hmm. Joker likes chaos. Yeah. He wants chaos. Chaos is his friend. And so we have this, this, this rump group of Republicans in the House who were election denialists, they're backing Trump despite Trump's indictments and his efforts to overturn the U.S. Constitution. And they, no surprise, they can't get together to, because they're not, they're only a part of the caucus. They can't work with others to try to come up with a speaker candidate who all Republicans can support. Somebody who, even if they're far right, even if they're a Trump supporter, Mm -hmm. would still have some... allegiance to the institution and some sense of responsibility. It is chaotic to be sure, and uh, speaking of getting together, they are getting together today, House Republicans meeting today to hold a candidate forum for aspiring speaker nominees to present their visions for the conference. Uh, so this story continues, and so will this conversation when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley.
Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 Tavis Smiley and David Korn, the uh, Washington Real Chief from Mother Jones, uh, author of the best-selling book, American Psychosis, is our guest in this first hour. As we talk politics, and God knows there's a whole lot to get to in these uh, next 45 minutes. Let me stay uh, for a moment or two longer here, David, with this uh, House speakership uh, drama. Uh, and um, how do you think the Democrats are playing this? There was a great conversation uh, to be had a few weeks ago when all this drama started about whether or not Democrats would save Kevin McCarthy. There was talk, as you recall, uh, that Hakeem Jeffries, um, the Democratic leader, uh, minority leader, might cut some deal with McCarthy um, to extract certain things from him in exchange for a few Democratic votes that would have allowed him to remain speaker. The, the, the thinking is it's better to dance with the devil you know uh, than to deal with the devil that you don't know. Clearly, whatever one thinks of Kevin McCarthy, at least in my mind, Jim Jordan would have been worse, given who he is and what he represents. Not that McCarthy is an angel, um, but I'm not sure it gets any better than McCarthy, however one defines better. That said, um, not a lot for Democrats to do at the moment, per se. They're sitting back and watching this play out. I guess in the long run, this is good strategy, or as George Bush might say, strategery. This is a good strategy for Democrats long-term, because if you believe the data that we're getting, that based upon redistricting, Democrats are going to pick up a number of seats at a minimum six, likely more in competitive races. So it's 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 a it's very very possible, very likely, in fact, that Akeem Jeffries um, come this time next year will be on the verge of being the first African American speaker of the House. So I see the long term strategy letting the country see these Republicans being inept at being able to pick even a, uh, pick even a speaker, much less to govern the House. That's the long term strategy. In the short run, to your point, we have a government that is dysfunctional and. There's precious little at the moment that Democrats can do about it. So my large question is, how do you think the Democrats have and are playing this particular moment? You know, there's an old saying in politics, when your opponent comes out, pours gasoline all over himself and lights the match, you shouldn't get in the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I you know, there was talk about a deal with McCarthy, although that was not serious talk. There was more serious talk last week about the Democrats, you know, agreeing to let Patrick McHenry, who is sort of the temporary speaker at the mm-hmm. moment, who, ha- who is a Republican, but has no, no he, he has no power other than to basically uh, handle the speakership vote. So, but there was talk about granting him more powers to act as a speaker for at least a couple of months to get through a government shutdown and get these aid packages to Ukraine or Israel through through the Congress. And I think Democrats, you know, were, you know, King Jeffries and others were indicating, yes, they would maybe agree to this bipartisan deal under the right circumstances and talked about looking for bipartisan solutions to the to the current uh, mess. Uh, I, you know, that idea was quickly shot down, shot down by the Republicans in the Republican caucus. So maybe it will emerge again, and maybe King Jeffries and the Democrats can find a way to help the Republicans get out of this mess. I don't think it's going to be by cutting a deal that's going to install a particular Republican as Speaker. But um, I think right now, with, you know, whether it was McCarthy or Jordan, you had people running for the Speakership who had denied the 2020 election. They had, you know, they were now promoting this baseless impeachment crusade against the Democratic president, Joe Biden, and mucking up everything else, 
supporting Donald Trump, who has an authoritarian plan to implement should he become president, who has spoken against the Constitution, has made racist remarks, anti-Semitic remarks. Um, I don't see why any Democrat in their right mind would just vote for either of these two guys unless the deal was just so overwhelmingly positive, which is hard to envision. So I think so far they've been pretty smart. They haven't rescued McCarthy. They certainly weren't going to rescue Jordan. Mm -hmm. And they've been looking to see if things get to such a point that enough Republicans, doesn't it be all Republicans, but enough House Republicans decide, you know, we are falling apart here. We need to come up with some bipartisan compromise. And if the, and if there are enough Republicans who say that, eventually, then I think Hakeem Jeffries is, and the Democrats are ready to move in and, and do something. Yeah, of course. Until that happens, yeah. they're just watching the train crash. Until that happens, we have a dysfunctional government. And so we, we, can, yes. we can say this all day long, that we're watching a train wreck. At the end of the day, though, David, and I'm just playing devil's advocate for the sake of argument, yeah. we have a dysfunctional government at the moment. Democrats are attempting to do nothing about that. I digress on that point. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, the, the, the eyes of the world are always on, on the U.S. for any number of reasons at any given time. At the moment, the eyes of the world are on us, given our engagement and involvement uh, in a proxy war, as I see it with Russia, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine. The eyes of the world are on us, given what we're doing uh, to aid and abet uh, Israel and its uh, war against Hamas. So the, the eyes of the world are, are on this country. At this moment, with all of that attention, that we can't figure out the speakership of our house, how do you think the world sees us right about now in that regard? I, I, think, they, I, I think it's terrible for the U.S., Abroad. I think, you know, Biden, whether you like what he's doing or not in terms of, you know, how he's handling the Israeli side of things, he is an engaged politician, an engaged president running diplomacy to deal with that issue and while dealing with Ukraine. And he's he said Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is doing the same thing. They look like they're at least working and trying to do whatever it is they want to do. Uh, but, the, you know, the House Republicans look like their own petty squabbles are more important to them than to uh, than, than the plight of the world and these wars and these conflicts or anything that's happening here at home. And I think that doesn't help, you know, the, the American image abroad. Uh, but I think it's very particular to the House Republicans uh, and that people understand that they represent just, you know, a slice of America and just a piece of the American government. But it's, it's just quite amazing to me that they can't, that they're so extreme, so, so extreme, committed to their own radicalism and their hate of government and their hate of Barack Obama and, and, and Joe Biden and whatever else there it is, that they can't pull together and come up amongst themselves with some way to move forward. And, yeah, it looks, it looks awful, but, you know, Americans voted these guys in and we'll see it will look even more awful if next year uh, they keep in people who show that they can't do the job. Yeah. Let me uh, let me pivot then. Since you raised um, Blinken and Biden with respect to uh, to Israel and uh, Hamas, yeah. uh, let me let me pivot to that. And we'll spend some time on that. And again, some other issues I want to cover in this hour. Uh, but let me just try this on you for size and see how, how it fits, see how you wear this garment or, or dislike this garment. As you were talking a moment ago uh, about the fact that that Republicans represent just a slice of government, just a slice of support uh, in America writ large, my mind went to Hamas. 
um, because Hamas is the duly elected uh, uh, governing authority uh, in Palestine. But they, too, represent just a slice of the Palestinian people. And yet, increasingly, the commentary that I'm reading, uh, never mind Blinken and Biden trying to suggest that Hamas is not Palestine, that's not what's happening in the American debate about this. Either you're on the Israeli side or you're on the Palestinian side. And nobody seems to make the point that you just made about Republicans that they don't represent all of us. Indeed, when Donald Trump was president, 70 plus million votes, but he didn't, rep he did but he didn't represent all of us. And yet I'm seeing that distinction, that line of demarcation get more and more blurry every day when it comes yeah. to our discourse about Israel and Hamas. Does that point, does that pivot make sense to you? It, it does, and it, and it saddens me because when I look at what's happening in, in, in the Middle East, I, you know, this is personal here, I can look at what happened with the Hamas attack and recoil at it with horror at the way they massacred civilians. I believe the deliberate targeting of civilians in any military conflict is, is just immoral, wrong, and violates the rule of law, and how, that, you know, and it's just so, so obvious. And then when I see what's happening in Gaza with the counterstrikes and the thousands of civilians who have been killed and driven from their homes and had their homes destroyed, I see that as wrong as well. And I feel empathy um, for both sides and, 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 and yearn for a solution that will protect the right and dignity and security of people on each side of, of the border, Gaza and, and Israel includes the West Bank, occupied territories in the West Bank as well. And yet, you know, we have this sort of tribalistic, you know, instinct that drives people from one side to the other, and, you know, either that be pro this or an anti that or pro that and anti this. And it is, you know, it is quite discouraging. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I see there's graffiti happening uh, around the world, calling for killing Jews. And I see people like Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, uh, Republican, who a few days ago said he wants to see Israel bounce the rubble in Gaza. Bounce the rubble? That means you know, more civilian deaths and creating also more you know, agony, misery, and hatred, which is not going to lead to any solution of the of the deep rooted problem here. So, uh, you know, why it's so difficult to call each other out, you know, and, you know, call out the wrong on each side? Uh, I don't, I don't quite get. To and uh, you know, I'm for Palestinian rights, and I'm against Hamas, and I think what they did was 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 an act of uh, 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 violates every tenet of morality and rules of law. And that, I don't understand why that seems to be a difficult position to yeah. hold. It, it is difficult to hold for, for too many people, um, which takes me now to a piece I read uh, last night. Uh, this morning I read so many pieces uh, from Nick Kristoff uh, in The Times. Nick is a brilliant writer, uh, brilliant thinker, and he doesn't need any help from me. But this audience will attest that last week on more than one occasion uh, I said and have said that part of the problem for me in this regard, David, um, uh, is that too many Palestinians, I think, don't think that the life of a Jewish baby has the same value of the life of a Palestinian baby. And too many Jews don't think that a Palestinian baby has the same value and worth of a life as the life of a Jewish baby. I said that multiple times last week on this program. So Nick Kristoff is all over the New York Times today, and everybody's commenting on his piece. He makes the very same point about the value of these lives 
not being viewed as the same by either side. And so now uh, Tavis says it last week. Nick Kristoff says it now. And everybody's talking about it. I am mad at him. He is Nick Kristoff in the LA and the New York Times rather, and I am not. I get that. But I'm glad that Nick made this point because, again, everybody is now uh, discussing the issue that Nick raises in his piece. He's catching some hell for it, to be sure. But at the end of the day, that seems to me to be at the epicenter uh, of why this war rages for, for, for year and decade and century after century, it seems. Um, your take on that particular point, that, that not enough people engaged and involved in this value the life of each other as much as they value their own lives. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think people get too caught up on one side of a tribalistic divide uh, and don't you know, start dehumanizing the other side. It's quite clear that the Hamas attackers dehumanized the Iraqi civilians and the 260 young adults who were at a rave, the way, you know, the, the way they deliberately slaughtered them on purpose uh, is, is, is horrific. And the same way that the, you know, the strikes in, 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 in Gaza are taking as many, if not more, lives. The Palestinian lives matter as much as the, as, as the Israeli lives. And to see you know, pro-Palestinian rallies, which support the rights of Palestinians, which is something that I do agree with, but to ignore Hamas or to have slow, even sometimes to have people who are pro-Hamas or have slogans that seem to imply support for Hamas, you know, I, I think it's, it's dreadful in the same way that you have Israelis who are calling for revenge and for flat, wiping out Gaza. And that's the, and that uh, and that's the question, David, for me at this point. The question is, after all that Joe Biden has said and done and continues to say and do uh, in support of Israel, uh, almost without reservation, whether or not at this point, uh, whether or not at this point he can have them pull back on this mission to crush and destroy. It seems to me that once you get that far out in your support of Israel, it's hard to tell Bibi and and, and company to pull back, uh, to be measured in their response when they've already said they want to crush and destroy, and you've done nothing to stop that. Yeah, I've, I've been writing a lot about that the last few days in my, in my newsletter. People can go to davidcorn.com to sign up. And it seems to me that what Biden has this very clear strategy. He is in public supporting Bibi, sending more aid to him, and meanwhile, in private conversations that he, Blinken, and others are having with their Israeli counterparts, they're basically warning them not to go in too far, too deep, too long. Mm. And they've been saying, and it's interesting to me, they've been saying, look at what happened to America after 9-11. Mm -hmm. we, were in, we were fueled by rage, and Bush and Cheney exploited that to not just attack Afghanistan, to Afghanistan, but then to attack Iraq. And what happened? We had a disastrous war that destabilized the region. 4,000 or so American soldiers were dead. Over 200,000 Iraqi civilians, not fighters, but civilians, were killed in the violence that ensued after our invasion of, of Iraq. And so they've been making that point again and again, and le basically leaning on them. And there are, you know, there are people within the Israeli cabinet have basically called, and this has been reported extensively, for not just an all-out attack in Gaza, but to attack Hezbollah in the north, in yeah. southern Lebanon, let, 
and expand the war, which could bring Iran into it. No, let me. You can have this regional conflict. Let me let me talk about that when we come forward. Uh, whether or not uh, we get into a wider war, that is the concern here. That 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 Biden now cannot pull BB back in their effort to crush and destroy. But now there are concerns uh, on top of that about a wider war. We're talking to David Corn. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tap is smiling. Smiley continues when we come forward. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Tavis Smiley and David Korn. Uh, David Korn, of course, is the Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones and the best-selling author of American Psychosis. We're talking politics in this first hour. going to be a great show today, but uh, so many trending stories to get to uh, in this first hour. Uh, let me keep moving here. Before I move past Israel, not past, move on from Israel and Hamas, you can't move past it. No, no way to do that these days. Um, uh, Israel is launching these intense airstrikes, this ground war. Uh, is uh, is underway and on the way, uh, David Korn. And the, 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 the thing for me, and I said this again last week on this program, um, Biden is getting great credit from those who think he did the right thing, at least, uh, by, going to, uh, by going to Israel uh, when he did. And yet every one of us knew that the minute Air Force One took off, uh, plans were moving forward to, again, crush and destroy. So that ground uh, war that we expected just had a reprieve only because uh, Biden was in the region, was in the area, uh, in Israel to be exact. Um, but now uh, the ground offensive uh, is um, is going to take off, uh, and they again are going to, these are BB's words, crush and destroy. But it, it raises some concerns um, on their other border, uh, the Lebanon border, about whether or not this war will get wider. And here's what I'm, here's what I'm concerned about. Everywhere you go, people are talking about whether or not we're on the verge of World War III. Um, depending on how aggressive Israel is in, in, in Gaza, um, it means that you have these other, uh, Arab nations who are standing by watching this happen. And it raises a fundamental question of how much Israel is going to get away with as others watch, uh, and we expect them, uh, the Biden administration is trying to keep them on the sideline. I'm not so sure, depending on, again, how aggressive Israel goes at this, whether or not the Biden administration, Biden, Blinken, can be successful at keeping these other Arab nations on the sideline. And if you can't do that, then we are into a wider war. Well, I think that's right. And I think that's, you know, I think Biden's game plan here is to be supportive of Bibi and Israel uh, in public and to use that, you know, Beyond the scenes to try to prevent a greater catastrophe, so he's not calling for a ceasefire or pause in the fighting now, as some um, progressives and Democrats and others have been calling for. Because I think they're more concerned, and I hate to use it that way, because the death of anybody in, 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 in a war like, like has happening now is a tragedy. But I think that you know they want to make sure that this this, this terrible war doesn't become more terrible and the and then they calculate the way to do that is to be supportive publicly while leaning privately now the, the question that you know that, that that comes to mind here is that we give 3.8 billion dollars a year to israel for military assistance so we do the same with egypt as part of the camp david accords from the Jimmy Carter days, mm-hmm. and now Biden is going and asking for $14 billion more over the course of several years uh, to for military assistance to to Israel. 
So there is a fair amount of leverage here. You know, you know, you could condition that aid on not taking uh, Israel not taking certain actions, stopping the settlements that are provocative in the in the occupied West Bank. There are things you could do, if, you know, private if you're willing to do that. And it's unclear to what extent Biden is using that stick. But right now, it's pretty clear that the most popular politician in Israel at the moment is Joe Biden. It's, you know, there have been demonstrations calling for Netanyahu to resign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gigantic this past weekend. You have columnists, you have po- political figures. I mean, this is unlike what happened here in 9-11, where people rallied around George W. Bush, even though his administration had kind of dropped the ball and had not paid attention to the issue of, of terrorism and al-Qaeda, and they paid more attention to dealing with Saddam Hussein, and that, that was what they thought the threat was, that, you know, he totally screwed up in this the warning in the, in the summer of a possible terror attack from al-Qaeda. And yet here, you know, after that horrific event on 9-11, no one, you know, there wasn't much blame for him popular, and people rallied to around put, him. That's put... not what's happening in Israel, where where there's a lot of popular right. reaction against Netanyahu. To put a fi- to put a final point on it, in some respects, Joe Biden right now is more popular in Israel than he is in these states. Uh, I, I I say that in yes. not not to be tongue in cheek, but uh, there are literally billboards popping up all over Israel. Uh, thanking and loving on Joe Biden. I mean, he literally, there's a billboard campaign all across the country where Joe Biden's face is appearing on these massive billboards. Um, he is more popular in Israel right now uh, than even Bibi Netanyahu is, uh, and there's evidence uh, to sort of prove that. Let me let me, let me me come back to this, my, my final point on this. I think we got to move on to cover a couple of things right quick here. Um, there are two things that I have, that I'm having difficulty navigating. Let me see, uh, given that you are much brighter than I am, whether you can help me on these two things. One is the speech the president gave last week where he's asking for money for both more money for both Ukraine and Israel. And it's clear <laughs> to me, at least, that one country you're giving money to because you don't want them to be occupied by the Russians. Uh, another country you're giving money to as they are, in fact, occupiers in real time. That 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 dichotomy doesn't work for me. Number one. Number two, what also doesn't work for me is that you're giving weapons to one country in the in the middle east israel more weapons to them but humanitarian aid to the other side i mean i'm not stuck on stupid i get it politically but it just it it is so hollow that you're arming one side and you're giving aid to the other side uh that will help them once they get bombed by the other side i mean it's it's a strange it's a strange thing david no i've written about that over the years i think there's something particularly absurd about this we're funding the bombs and then we're funding the Band-Aids, yeah. right? You know, it's like, you know, and like, what is it? What, what if we just didn't have the bombs and the attacks, then we wouldn't need the Band-Aids, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, but you know, we're in this position where we've become the number one supporter of Israel. As part of the Camp David Accords, go back, you got to go back to that, and we give just as much money to Egypt, which itself has a government with its that, that's repressive and that's, you know, locking down on dissent, and is not rushing, I have to say, to help the Palestinians. They're letting some aid go through the, the southern border, which is, which is with Egypt, but in Gaza. But they're not, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they don't want, you know, Gazan refugees, in, you know, coming into Egypt and to help them. So, you know, we, we're funding both sides of that to bring about a peace 
you know, a, a peace between Israel and Egypt, yeah. not a peace in the region, and therefore we're, we're supporting the Israeli military as it attacks um, um, Gaza. Uh, you know, there is something, you know, there are a lot of absurdities, and, and, and you know, here, you know, Trump made nice with, with the Saudis, who yep. um, have supported terrorism over the years, the 9-11 guys. There's just a lot of stuff in the Middle East that if you think about it too hard, it hurts your head, no, and, it, and it breaks your heart. No, it does both. It breaks your heart. It does both. You know, I don't want my money going to the bombs that are doing this, but, you know, but then also, you know, for those of us who say, you know, Israel, you know, there should be a ceasefire or pause, that's true. At the same time, we need pressure you know, to stop Hamas from doing the attacks yeah. it does. Uh, we need pressure to stop Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a, is this, you know, is, is, is a fundamentalist militia run by Iran that has more power in Lebanon yeah. than the Lebanese government well, let, or the Lebanese military. Let's hope that Bibi doesn't make the state, doesn't make the mistake that is of, of, of going after Hezbollah. That would be a real, real problem. Yes. World War Three happens tomorrow if that happens. Um, you mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about Donald Trump. There are at least two things that uh, I want to get David's temperature on, take his temperature on. One, uh, there are now, what, three or four people uh, in this case brought by Fannie Willis, the sister DA down in Fulton County in Atlanta. Three or four of these persons now have all pled guilty. So one by one, they are turning on Donald Trump. Want to get David's read on that, including, of course, Sidney Powell, who Trump now claims was never his attorney. She was never my attorney. Okay, Mr. Trump, we'll get David's take on that. And uh, first there was a gag order, and in very short order, which we knew was going to happen, Donald Trump violated the gag order for which he's been fined. What does it mean? And is that gag order constitutional anyway? Jeffrey Tubin says it is. Irvin Tremorinsky says it's not. Go figure. More with David Corn when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. All right, David Corn. Let's move to some Trump news. You mentioned Trump, uh, and uh, let's go there right quick. Uh, one, <laughs> uh, these stories are developing. It, it seems by by the day. Uh, where uh, many of these persons uh, accused, uh, indicted, uh, arraigned uh, by Fannie Willis down in Atlanta, Fulton County, uh, are starting to plead guilty one by one. I've lost count now. I think there are four, but three or four of them have pled guilty already, including the most recent big story, Sidney Powell, who Trump now claims was never his attorney in the first place. It's it's even nonsensical to respond to that that craziness. But 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 my my, my question is what you make of where this uh, this case uh, this particular case there are many where this case is headed. So long as these persons keep dropping like flies and pleading guilty, but well, they put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Let's look at the big picture for a second. Right now, you know, we had Sidney Powell uh, plead guilty. And last week, at the end of the week, we had Kenneth Cheeseboro mm-hmm. plead guilty. Cheeseboro is the guy, really the guy who came up with the whole scheme to, to, to come up with fake electors and send them in and create a, a conflict, a controversy that shouldn't exist to try to stop the certification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. A lot of people blame John Eastman, another lawyer, for being the lead person of the, uh, on that effort. But it really was Kenneth Cheeseboro who came up with this idea and advocated it within Trump circles and with, with Trump himself. And so, so the big picture, Tavis, you have two Trump lawyers, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Cheeseboro, who both 
confirmed, with their guilty pleas, they have confirmed that crimes were committed in this effort to overturn the 2020 election, that it just wasn't a thing that was done, it wasn't just politics, it was criminal. Who says so? Trump's own lawyers mm-hmm. say so by agreeing to plead guilty to these charges. They are saying they were part of a criminal activity that was part of this effort to thwart the election so that Donald Trump could you know, retain power. I think this is tremendously dramatic mm-hmm. and, you know, and should be front-page news for weeks. His own lawyers are now saying this was a criminal activity. And so that, to me, is the big poetic picture. On the more down-to-earth picture, it means big trouble for Trump's legal team and for Trump himself. Yeah. You know, the part of these deals, and the other people who plead guilty are much lower down on the on the ladder of the totem pole. Mm-hmm. You know, but with Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheeseborough, they have both agreed to basically tell all, yeah. hand over emails and documents to the to Fonnie Willis's uh, team, and this information can be shared with Jack Smith, who's prosecuting the federal case against Donald Trump. And so you have people who now admitted to committing crimes who are going to be talking about their interactions with Donald Trump and others within his inner circle. So that highly, highly, highly significant to the per- prosecution of Trump, both in Atlanta and here in Washington, D.C. All right. That's Atlanta. Let me come to D.C. when we come forward, uh, because in that particular case, um, there was a gag order and it didn't take long for Trump to violate it. The question is whether or not the gag order is constitutional to begin with. Uh, we'll talk about that in our remaining moments with David Korn. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis, Tavis Smiley. Ranked number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Got a few minutes left here to cover one last piece of business uh, in this first hour with our guest, David Korn, uh, the Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones. Uh, Love that publication and author of, uh, best-selling author of the book American Psychosis, now out in paperback. Um, David, uh, so one last piece of Trump uh, business here. So this gag order um, that uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, this is the black, the, the, the sister judge. We've got a sister DA down in Fulton County, a sister judge in this particular case in D.C. Uh, and she put a gag order uh, in uh, and basically told Trump, you know, don't talk. You can talk about me. She didn't say that, but that was the that was the suggestion because he's already done that. But you can't talk about my court workers. You can't talk about my, you know, my apparatus here you can't so that he was he was off limits to say certain things about certain people um and it raises all kinds of questions as to whether or not this um uh, gag order uh, was or is constitutional over the weekend i read a couple pieces one by jeffrey tubin who argued uh, that it was in fact the right thing to do uh, the other by urban chamarinsky uh, both brilliant legal minds who said this is a real problem it's not constitutional your take on that you know, that, it's, it's a great, it's a fascinating subject, and uh, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I've long wondered about ga- about the constitutionality of gag orders, because as a journalist, mm-hmm. I often want to get information out of court trials or out of the people involved in trials, and when they say there's a gag order, as a reporter, I think, well, is that, you know, a improper infringement on their right to speak, and my right as a reporter to convey information. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think this is an issue that you know, we, the judicial system has largely sidestepped for, for its entire existence here in the United States. 
I mean, it, it seems, you know, you know, it's also, you know, it's one of these issues where there's competing interests. You know, it's illegal to tamper with a jury, right? It's illegal to intimidate witnesses. How do you intimidate witnesses? Sometimes it's by saying, you know, we know where your daughter lives. Now, free speech will let you say that, but the, but the, the, the purpose of that free speech is to intimidate. So, you know, I, I, you know, I would argue, or I think I, where I would land, is that you don't have a, 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 a defendant doesn't have the right to say anything. They have a lot of liberty to talk about the case in general, but in terms of doing anything that might seem like it intimidates a member of the court, someone in jury, another witness, another defendant, that there the judge has the right to say you can't intimidate. Yeah. You can you know, you can criticize, but you can't intimidate. Well, my, and you know that might be a fine line. Yeah, it is a fine line. And my sense is Trump and his lawyers are going to test uh, test the strength oh, yeah. of, the, the strength of that line, uh, that fine line. Uh, we we shall see. But they have their way; they'll go bursting right through it. We'll leave it there for now, David Corn. We'll do it again somewhere down the road. All the best to you. Thanks for your insights. Good to have you back on this program. Great to talk to you, Tavis. All right, be well, David.